0: Our epistle reading this morning is taken from the letter to the Ephesians in the first chapter and we hear these words beginning in the 15th verse. I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints and for this reason I do not cease to give thanks for you as I remember you in my prayers. I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, the fullness of him who fills all in all hear what the spirit is saying to the church be to God. this is reign of christ sunday the last sunday of ordinary time before we enter the advent season the word reign goes back to an earlier age, a time of kingship, a time of empire. And the word implies lording over. We think of the Middle Ages, the word Lord was used with vassals, really vassals who were owned by those who lorded above them. And so the phrase Lord can be problematic. It also can be problematic in the sphere of men with women. I think of the current scandals about sexual harassment, and when you think about it, they really are about the abuse of power, exploitation, even criminal behavior. And so I recognize that the word Lord can be problematic in in some ways, and yet it really is the earliest affirmation of the Christian church. The faith of the church was that Jesus is Lord. We've had John Dominic Crossan and Marcus Borg here, and they've made clear that that phrase, Jesus is Lord, is really in contradiction, really over against the accepting view of the day that Caesar is Lord. In other words, Jesus is really Lord above all, including the temporal powers. In the United Church of Christ, Christ is the head of the church in our polity, and our understanding of church life. Much of that is rooted in texts such as the one we've read from Ephesians. Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus. When I say Paul, it's not clear that it was Paul. Some language seems different than authentic letters of his, and yet it very well could be Paul or a member of his school, a Pauline figure. But it was written to a place in Asia Minor, which is today's Turkey, which was the Roman capital of the ancient Near East. I visited that some years ago. It's an extraordinary place to see, to see the ruins, the amphitheater that's been excavated, the roads, the buildings. It was quite a significant city in the Roman Empire in that part of the world. And Paul is writing to this place, which is not only a thriving capital, but it's also a place of a thriving church. There's much competition, of course. Paul has run afoul of the religious authorities, those who are vendors of holy objects for the temple of Diana. He actually has run afoul of some commercial interests as well. And so the letter reflects not only his theological understandings, but his ethical understandings as well about church life and life in the world. But he is also very pastoral in the sense that he's writing to this church saying, I've heard of your faithfulness to Lord Jesus, of your love for one another towards the saints, which are really the members of the church, and he asks God to give them wisdom, and revelation, so that they may know him. In a phrase that struck me, he says, I ask that he illumine the eyes of your heart, so that you may become aware of the hope to which he is calling you, what glorious riches are to be inherited by the saints, and how exceedingly great is his power over us believers. Of course, this affirmation is based on Jesus rising from the dead. It talks of his being raised, enthroned at the right hand of God, above every government and authority, power, and dominion, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. Thus, the writer is affirming that Jesus is greater than ancient Rome, greater than the America of the American century, greater than the ancient Chinese empire and the new empire under Xi Jinping. He put everything under his feet, appointed him the head over all, the head of the church. And indeed, the church is his body. And we are the body full of him who fills all things totally. This could be a very grandiose statement in many ways. When you think of all the powers of the world, it's said that Xi Jinping is now the most powerful person in China since Mao Zedong. And it's true also that other leaders in our country and around the world are heirs to authorities and powers, much as the Caesars and Napoleons of history. And if the church is Christ's body, what are we then? I don't think it's the old idea of the church militant or the church triumphant, onward Christian soldiers. We're not the shock troops of a worldwide evangelism. We're not the civil religion of the American century and the American empire. But we indeed are the body of Christ, Christ who has been affirmed in this letter to be above all things, all things temporal and heavenly. Now think about this claim. Jesus was crucified by the Roman Empire. He was condemned by the religious authorities of his own faith tradition. He died a criminal's death, was dead and buried. Later, his followers, who were scared and scattered, experienced him as being alive. We have no other witnesses of this other than our sacred texts. And indeed, at that time, Caesar still reigns. Other gods are worshipped. Other people who are not of his faith and ethnicity are now following this new way of Jesus Christ. And Paul, this Pharisee who spoke and wrote Greek and was a Roman citizen, is writing from prison to this new church in the midst of a Roman colony, praying for them, giving thanks for them, asking them to see with their hearts to become aware of their hope and their calling. All of our senses, we, we think of seeing to gain information. We say seeing is believing. Of course, we think of the head as the seat of the intellect and the heart as the seat of emotion. So what is it to see from the heart? The heart is truly the seat an image of compassion, of love, of care and concern. And there is a head-heart connection that indeed is important, that we look not only to what we know from our minds, but what we know from our hearts. And the heart is saying that someone else other than these worldly powers is really the Lord, that Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. And that is the hope of our calling It's also true that this is grounded in the idea that this crucified Jesus was raised by God. The resurrection has always been hard to believe, hard to prove. In 19th century liberal theology, it was often thought that maybe the resurrection did not really occur. In the 20th century, there's talk of Rudolf Bultmann and others of Jesus having risen really because the disciples were changed, that there was a new reality, a new realized eschatology. But the point is, is that this life of Jesus has brought about the change in human beings. So how are we changed? Another text for this day is the text where Jesus really deals harshly with the question of whether we have not helped the poor, visited those in prison, fed the hungry, clothed the naked. And those who fail to do are separated from those who have. It is a strong saying, but it makes clear that Jesus as Lord is calling us, compelling us ethically to respond, to respond to the needs of others, to respond to those needs in our world, that we are called to follow Jesus, to be people who live like Jesus, the one who valued the marginalized, welcomed those who were not welcome elsewhere, who truly included all in his vision of the better life. So truly, this ethical reality comes out of the affirmation that Jesus is the Lord of our lives, that that indeed is the image of the life of a person of faith, that we are to follow this. Sometimes this is difficult because we think about our behaviors and we know that we do fall short, that we sometimes are not able to become more fully the people we were created to be. I ran across a little book not long ago that's been out for a while. It was by Louis B. Smeeds, a professor at Fuller Theological Seminary. It's called A Pretty Good Person, and he describes the person everybody wants to be. He says, deep in every healthy person's heart simmers a longing to be a good person, a pretty good person at least. He says, if you think you might be an exception, ask a simple question. How do you want to be remembered after you die by people who matter to you, your children, people who know you as you really are? How do you want them to be I want them to remember you. He says how we want to be remembered is a sure sign of the sort of person we really want to be. He says there are many things that outlast what he calls the three restless desires of the modern heart. He says in the modern heart, we often have the urge to feel good, the urge to make good or the urge to look good. He says these are very good goods, if you will, but they make very bad gods in our life. We look to better dreams, what Alexei de Tocqueville called the habits of our hearts, and they are gratitude and courage, integrity, self-control, discernment, and fair love. These are the makings of pretty good people, real people. The images of people we want to be. And each of these would be a sermon in itself, but they're all habits of the heart, centered in the heart of each of us, our desire to be pretty good people. Now, Smead talks about this by telling people's stories. People all have stories real stories about life. I have a good friend who was my spiritual director and who said many years ago, everyone wants to be heard without judgment, to hear our stories, to hear the stories of others. I was in Washington, D.C. after law school for six years and I met a man from Missouri whose wife worked in our office. He had been in politics and government in his home state and was in trade association work um, in Washington at the time. He later returned to Missouri to serve the Missouri Bankers Association. But one night, we were talking at one of those watering holes after work, and he says, you know, everybody has a story. And he wasn't saying this cynically about false stories or stories about how we would like to be or would want to be but stories about who we are, true stories, stories about our journey, our path, our life experience, the unique journey each of us has. And I came to appreciate this truth. I've appreciated in pastoral ministry. I do many memorial services, and I say we are here to remember and celebrate a life. We are here to be together, and we're here to offer God our prayers. We've always at this church, not just done a generic service of faith, but also have talked about the person. We call it a celebration of life. I remember when I was a young person, my grandfather, who was very significant in my life, said, you know, when I die, I want somebody to talk about me. And I remember thinking, well, you know, I'm sure we will. But the reality was, that when we got to the memorial service, we did tell stories about him and the significance of his journey and of his life to our lives in our family. But we also gather not just to remember and celebrate a life, we also gather in the conviction of the resurrection. And Ephesians tells us why. Ephesians describes how Jesus was raised. And how Jesus lives eternally and truly is the one above all of our lives, in our lives. In other words, our lives are in good hands. Nothing can separate us from the love of God and Christ Jesus. And so it's important for us to live our lives, to live our lives freely. I well remember my friend Julie Osborne who was director of older adult ministry here, and she's told people, don't live your age, live your life. And I think that is so true. Whatever age we are, whatever circumstance, live our lives as best we can, as best we can free of anxiety and fear, because what the text in Ephesians is telling us is that all has been made well, that all is indeed well, not as the world would have it, but that ultimately we are in the care of a loving God who makes each of us as if there were only one of us to love, who makes each of us in his own image. And so we're called to live our lives as best we can and not, not to worry about the future, particularly the eternal future, which is in God's good hands. We are free to live in this world and the time and place that we find ourselves. I well remember Anthony DeMello who wrote, many of us say we'll only be happy in life if we get certain things, if certain things happen to us or we receive certain things. Could be career, could be relationships, could be material well-being, could be anything that we attach supreme value to. But he says, whatever we attach that kind of value to, he knows people who can be happy without those things. And so in a way, we've made those things more important to us than God. They become idols, become a reality beyond which they were intended. I think of the marriage relationship in this way, and in any committed relationship, any place where vows are taken, to one another, or to something beyond ourselves. We always take a vow in the present, not knowing what the future holds. In a relationship, a vow is made not knowing whether one will be prosperous or have poverty, not knowing whether one will have good health or may have poor health, certainly knowing that life brings more than its share of joys and sorrows. But one is making a permanent commitment One is there to make that commitment, come what may, even not aware of what it may bring in life. Thus I think of Marcus Borg once again, who did stand in this pulpit three different times. There's a quote that reminded me so much of this reality. He said, the radical uncertainty of death makes life precious uncertainty We all know, particularly in this day and age, of the uncertainty of life. In addition to the usual possibilities of accidents and disease and loss in other ways, we have the violence of our world. A mosque attacked in Egypt, a church in Texas, a nightclub in Florida, a school in Connecticut. There is radical uncertainty in this life. People going about their days and then something intervenes. And so one has to live in the present. And Borg says we don't live in the moment, some crazy moment as if we're in denial. But he says it's time to do those things that we're called to do. It's time to not put off those things that are most meaningful and purposeful in our lives because of the radical uncertainty of life and of the way in which that very moment becomes precious. Each and every moment is precious. So we ask, let's live our lives. Let's live our lives in the present moment, making the most of it, not out of fear of death and judgment on the other side, for our lives are secure, made secure in that one who came to live among us, died and lived as we live, it went on to, as the Gospel of John says, to prepare a place for us. So what do we do in the present? We live out of the heart. Live out of the heart as Jesus lived, loving, welcoming, including, valuing one another, hearing one another's stories, being willing to know that we all walk a path that is different but we somehow know to be the same. For we live our lives in the here and the now, but it's the eternal now, with the knowledge that Jesus went as our pioneer, as our model of faith, living as we are called to live, dying as we will die, but ultimately, living eternally. We can live in this life with gratitude, with courage and integrity. Not to lord over others, as the powers and dominions lord over others, but as members of one body. Later in the letter to the Ephesians, Paul says, there is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope of your calling. In this body and in this spirit, we live and breathe and have our very being, and our future is secure. So let us live from the heart in the here and the now. Let us pray. Loving and gracious God, we give thanks to you for the life that has shown us the way to live, for the life that lives in us as we seek to live your will in a world much in need. We pray this in the name of the one who gave us life in all its abundance. In Christ's name we do pray. Amen.